Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, and I'm the host of this consumer goods episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma as we take a look at the world's largest manufacturer of wood alternative decking, Trex. Asit, happy June. Emily, I feel like I have to one-up that. Is it already June? How about happy July? Can can you believe that it's already June? I genuinely woke up this morning and I was like, oh, where did the first half of the year go? I know where it went. It's it's in the rearview mirror. That's all I know. <laughs> but man, it was quick. <laughs> well, I actually got today's show idea from a listener. When we were taping last week, you had a question about Trex and uh, about whether or not Trex was still a good investment, especially considering uh, the price of lumber, which we had been talking about last week. And I've got kind of piqued my interest and you know, Trex is a great business for people who are members of the Motley Fool Rule Breakers uh, subscription. They, they're already familiar with Trex, or I hope they are, because Trex is David Gardner's ninth highest returning company on the Rule Breaker scorecard. Uh, it's outperformed the market by nearly 2,500% since David recommended it back in 2012. So it's an outstanding company for investors alongside Motley Fool Rule Breakers. But really, just in general, I mean, the, the wood alternative market has exploded since the Great Recession. So, needless to say, I'm excited to chat about it today. Yes, Emily, this is a company that I think for many of us, it's not under like your your field of view. It's on the radar screen. But at the same time, it's been a smaller capitalization company. Um, it's, it's now a little bit bigger. Revenues are approaching the $1 billion mark. So I think maybe it's in the foreground for many of us. Kudos to those who bought it when David recommended it in 2012, which was actually after, I think, a period of, of rocky years. The company went public in 1999. So I'm psyched to, to discuss this. Even more for me, as, as someone who's not a shareholder, is to sort of get to that point to figure out, hopefully in this podcast, well, would I buy this today and like hang on to this for another eight or nine year period? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I look forward to answering it. I think it's a fair assessment to say that it's unlikely Trex will see another 2,500% gain. I could be wrong, but it's already an $11 billion business. So it's already pretty large given its its market opportunity. But I think a good question is, do we think Trex can steadily beat the market from here? Uh, which would obviously not be 2,500%, uh, but a good 10% CAGR for the next 10 20 years? That's a good question. And I'm not sure if I have a really great answer, um, but I'm looking forward to hearing what your conclusion is. Yeah. And I I will try as we go along not to get colored by what I think, where your opinion is going, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I've got some thoughts. (laughs) Well, let's cover just Trex's business to start. I mentioned at the offset that it was the world's largest manufacturer of composite decking and railing products. Uh, So when you're thinking about the business that Trex is in, anything that uses traditional wood uh, can really be replaced with Trex. So a large part of their business, the vast majority of their business are residential decking markets. Uh, Decking, accessories, railing, fencing, replacing wood with their composite recycled material. But there's also a small portion of commercial sales. So for architectural purposes, for staging, that sort of thing. So it's maybe not the most exciting business from a, a the standpoint of, you know, I guess some of the businesses we cover on consumer goods, but it certainly is a good business and an increasingly important business. Yeah. And I think too, it's sort of uh, a business that Trex has created by itself uh, by coming up with an eco-friendly product. Now, if you take a look at the market, it's a little bit wider. Other companies have come into the mix. We're not going to spend uh, much time talking about competitors today, maybe a, a mention or so as we go along. But I think that it's pretty interesting uh, in the, just the idea. If you look back before 1998, there were not any major uh, companies offering this type of composite eco-friendly 
decking and railing product lines. So I think in that sense, it, it's an exciting investment that you're investing in a pioneer that now is in sort of the next stage of growth at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and this is something that we'll, I think we'll try to parse out during the podcast. This is a commodity business in some ways, even though it's got a component of niche in that this competes with like traditional lumber, it's still a commodity business. So we'll have to test that proposition as we go along as well. Yeah, I like thinking about this business because when you think about their core consumer, which are people who are in residential areas, building, upgrading, renovating decks that exist on homes, it's interesting to think about the decision-making process that those people, and more importantly, their contractors, go through in making a decision to, to choose treks over traditional wood. I do think there's a large part of the market that still prefers the look in the feel of traditional wood. And at this point, the price point of traditional wood, you know, prior to 2021 and 2020 was actually really competitive. Um, wood costs on average 15 to $30 a square foot. Treks cost on average 30 to $45 a square foot, even more expensive for the uh, fancier Treks products. So there is kind of the obvious, I think, decision-making that somebody would say, well, I'm just going to go traditional wood. It's cheaper. It's prettier to some people, it feels better. But when you actually look at the total cost of ownership, and when you actually think about the maintenance and the work that goes into maintaining a wood deck, as well as the environmental cost, increasingly, people are choosing to pay up for fake wood. I can see that. We, um, I'm looking outside as we talk. Of course, if you're listening to the podcast today, you can't see me looking out, but Motley Fool members on live are watching me turn my head, looking at my deck, which has had a higher cost of ownership than I thought when we bought our house uh, some 12 years ago, or maybe 15. My wife always knows the exact date. I don't know why I can't get this number straight, but we've stained it. Emily, exactly. We've sanded it down. We've refinished it with stain. Uh, Probably we're on our third of these ventures. So that tends to add up, not to mention that I'm not a handyman. So it takes me an inordinate amount of time to do the parts that I'm assigned to. My wife is so much more efficient with everything uh, when it comes to like handyman, handy person type repairs. But if I add up the cost, there's something that really um, comes to mind is that I'm also thinking of all the hours that I put in and chasing the the wood, uh, the nails around your deck over the years, having to replace sometimes a slat here and there, but also every you know summer having to hammer in all the nails because real wood, it does warp. It does crack. It's just not something that you can set it and forget it. Although I should say it, it does have a lovely feel to it, lovely color. I like the grain pattern of, of my wood, but would I consider maybe replacing this deck? It's not so big. And certainly after reading through the products in prep for this episode, I saw some that didn't look that much different than what I have <laughs> outside my window. So I'm beginning to think, hmm, maybe I should consider this. Well, for people who are like myself, who may have an aggressive fear of splinters, I feel like the decision is really obvious. I hate walking on any real wood. I think I was scarred one too many times as a kid with some very deep splinters. But for people who don't have my particular, you know, peculiarities, um, if you actually look at the total cost of ownership, like you mentioned, Trex actually claims to be cheaper over the life of the deck. So Trex products don't warp split or get moisture damage, which is important for people who are living in in temperate areas of the world. But you also don't have to worry about sand, paint, recoding. Um, You don't have to worry about chemical treatments. And Trex claims to last twice as long as traditional wood. So that makes it less likely to need to be replaced. And a lot of what Trex does is trying to convince people not to necessarily build a new deck, but to your point, Asit, people like yourself to replace their existing decks with treks. So to the, when you get to the point of, of your home ownership, and maybe you're about that point, you mentioned that you bought the house 10 to 15 years ago. If you're looking out at your deck and it's getting old and you're getting to the point where you have to make a decision about upgrading or replacing, maybe you'll choose to pay up a little bit more per square foot thinking to yourself, okay, well, if I stay in this house for another 10 or 15 years, I'm not going to need to pay to replace this deck by the time I move out. And that's where Trex really gets the majority of its market. 
Yes, that and the subliminal fear that you've just um, put in my head with the splinters. Now I'm going to be <laughs> careful. I walk on my tech barefoot all the time. Um, so, Emily, you you also um, were talking about in the prep for this episode the fact that this is a really environmentally friendly product, and it's actually if you were talking about costs, so cost of lumber versus uh, cost of a product which has a higher price point. If you are the type who are into sustainable products, you're also thinking about environmental cost. And I fi- find this interesting. So they use a composite which is made of recycled wood. And this recycled wood isn't the type of recycled wood I think of. It's like sawdust. <laughs> so they take sawdust and basically plastic film, the same type found in uh, the the plastic grocery bags at your local store. In fact, it's mo- most of this is recycled grocery bags. This is polyethylene film, not to be confused with polythene for you older folks out there like myself who remember um, the substance polythene. There was a great Beatles song. I think it was a John Lennon composition called Polythene Pam. I love that song. So you combine these two materials and there you have this very strong, very durable environmentally friendly product. It's it's made of recycled materials. It's going to last a long time, so that impact is less. This is something that has lent Trex a lot of brand power uh, over time. And this wouldn't be a, a, an episode of Industry Focus if we didn't talk about brand power. So I'll just mention at the outset here, we'll return to that. Yeah, that sounds good. And what I think is interesting about Trex's strategy is when I first started to research this business, I was under the assumption that Trex was in the business of trying to educate regular homeowners about the value of upgrading to a Trex decks and deck. And that that is true. I think there's always going to be an aspect of their business there. But actually, most of Trex's sales come from wholesale distributors. So Trex is actually more focused on emphasizing the importance and the value add of Trex products to professional contractors, remodelers, and home builders than they are the average person who owns a home. And that's because those professionals, and to quote Trex's management here, they're generally larger installations with professional professional craftsmanship, where Trex retailers can generally provide sales personnel trained in those products, contractor training, and inventory commitments. So getting more wholesalers on board, getting them to carry those products, and then selling them to contractors, and getting contractors to pick up on the Trex products allows them to make larger orders. So when you think about the business here, there's always going to be an aspect that's personal. And you might be thinking about your own house, or your own deck, or if you were to build a deck one day, the choices that you would make. And that certainly is an aspect. But I think there's some pushing happening on the wholesaler side, on the contractor side, on the professional side, that's important to not miss. Absolutely. And this has to do with something you mentioned earlier, that Trex has a lot of its sales that emanate from remodels. So uh, this can be remodeling in the sense of replacing a deck, but they also have uh, part of their market for decks which have never been attached to a home. So people who buy a house and then decide that they've got the space and they'd like to add that on. In both of those instances, if you're adding on a new deck or you're doing a remodel, you most likely are working with a, a designer. If not a designer, you're working straight with a contractor. And those two professionals um, have all of their training from Trex. They give you the option when you're sitting down to talk about the renovation that you're going to do in your house. And that is the the point of knowledge that's really, I think, precise for Trex. If they have that contractor educated, they're more likely to make a sale. The brand power, of course, comes in with someone who recognizes Trex from hearing about it or um, the, the tremendous word of mouth they have, understanding that the product is eco-friendly, already being receptive to the pitch. But this has been a really successful model for them ever since you know, they started the company in 1998. So let's talk about some of their financial performance here. Um, I know that you just mentioned since they started the business in 1998. And if you look at the share price over the past five or so years, you're probably thinking, this is always a really successful business. Uh, and that was not necessarily the case. <laughs> Sure. I I mean, Trex went public in 1999 with a a good amount of fanfare, and they had a really great financial model, very high gross margins, high net profits. But immediately, it seemed like after they went public, Trex ran into some initial growing pains. So the first, I would say, six or seven years, they were able to maintain 
their basic model, but profitability started to decrease a little bit as they were selling more. Uh, normal margin pressures, and then the Great Recession happened. So you had a, just the slump in consumer demand. But at the same time, Trex had a period where it had unusually high returns, so it had a big warranty expense. Consumers weren't buying; they were having to, uh, to take in all this return product. Their net profit margins, which had always been like in the net teens, plummeted and turned negative in 2008, 2009. They started having losses. Their gross margin, which when they introduced themselves to the public was trending around 50%, that hit the mid-teens during the same period. So it was already declining. This double whammy period, I think, was um, setting investors up at the time for maybe just this bleak outlook. But then right after the Great Recession, I think Trex saw this very gradual upward slope in both its gross margin and net margins, it never regained the healthiest uh, profits that it had when it first went public because it's it's hard to replicate that when you're growing at scale. And that's what Trex has done from going from a very small company to about $880 million in revenue last year. They finished um, 2020 with a gross margin of 39%, which is pretty decent. The thing that has really made the stock popular, though, is this combination of controlling overhead expenses, which management is very good at, they're very disciplined, with a lot of top-line growth. Even before uh, COVID-19, where Trex got this uh, really big boost, it has shown uh, evidence of being able to grow at scale. And I was surprised, Emily. I went back and looked at some old filings. Since 2012, they've been in, in fourth gear. So, I've talked here and there about my um, my manual uh, Mazda, which I don't want to get rid of. It's a Mazda 3, and I just love a stick shift, although I know I should convert to a more eco-friendly car, <laughs> and a new car. I've had this since 2007. But you know, it's, it's been paid off for years. I enjoy moving that, that stick around. I love fourth gear. Fourth gear says, I've left the 30 to 35 mile per hour zone behind. I'm accelerating. I'm almost on the highway. I'm going to kick this into fifth gear. I think fourth gear is a great gear for businesses. It's not a gear where you're overheating. So if you're not familiar with a stick shift, this is that higher gear. When you hear people say, so such and such is in a higher gear, they're talking about fourth gear and fifth gear. I don't know. This company has been in fourth gear for years and an impressive gear at that. I went back, as I said, to these old filings since 2012. Emily, they've grown their top line at a compounded annual growth rate of 14% year after year. Uh, if you think about a growth rate that's in the mid-teens, it's really impressive for the, the home improvement, do-it-yourself uh, building industry. Of course, this is not a do-it-yourself product, but they've fallen within that industry. I was pretty impressed. Yeah, if you can, if, if listeners don't mind indulging a little bit of navel gazing here about about Trex's performance, uh, we'll talk about what the next ten years might look like. But I, I always like to think about what must have been going through David's Gardner, David Gardner's mind in 2012 when he recommended Trex. And uh, I'm a little nostalgic, nostalgic now that David has taken a step back from stock picking at the Fool. But it wasn't an easy pick um, when you look at uh, how how volatile I think that industry had been for a number of years leading up to the pick. And granted, the years before 2012 were obviously improving, as you mentioned. But when you looked back over the previous decades, since 1999, 1998, when the company got started, it was not an easy pick. And I think there was a lot of skepticism about the potential and the reality for the decking market to move to wood alternatives. It wasn't as clear as it was then as it is today. And I think what makes David such a great investor is that he, he and to kind of butcher his saying here, sets up his portfolio to be the best vision of the future. And, and this is definitely a business that I think has a vision for the future, which really depends on that conversion of wood decks to alternative decks. And it might seem like a small vision <laughs> relative to all the things that can change in the world. But I love the fact that this vision that they've had for you know, three decades now are starting to turn into real financial results. And pre-COVID, this is still a great business, so that's worth reiterating is 
This is not a COVID play. This is not a lumber price play, although we'll get to that in a minute. This is genuinely a business that has proven some operating scale and operating leverage over the past few years. Uh, so excusing my my kind of you know, nostalgic trip back there, um, this, the financial performance here is outstanding. I will it say, does. though, when I think about some of the risks, I go back to that wholesaling um, and and trying to convince people just to stock Trex products. So much of their popularity depends upon the name brand recognition. Now that people are aware of the wood alternative space, competition is certainly heating up. So one of the key risks that I think about with Trex just in general is the fact that 56% of their sales come from three main distributors. Um, Presumably two of those are Lowe's and Home Depot. And you rightfully speculate that it's probably a, a third wholesaler that's making up the the three main, uh, I guess, distributors there. Either way, that's a lot of concentration. If, if they were to lose some relationships with either of those players, or if those players were to somehow produce private brands of their own, that could be threatening to this business. I think it's a good risk to point out. And we don't get the breakdown uh, of consumer purchases versus, um, I'll call them pro purchases. So, Home Depots and Lowe's, they have a whole commercial business for small contractors. I would think that most of those sales are coming through those contractors. So, that might be some insulation from that risk in that uh, professionals who have been trained in the Trex product could simply purchase from another company if, let's say, Home Depot decided that we're going to offer a competing product. We don't want to feature Trex any longer. But given that that's such a huge part of their business from from three of these, um, you know, two retailers and we think a third wholesaler. All outside of Home Depot and Lowe's, Trex sells almost exclusively to wholesalers. That that is something that concerns me, Um, Emily. One of the things that I was fascinated by is that Trex has developed all these commercial lines and products off of really a single U.S. patent, at least as far as their residential product is concerned. They've got about five patents that deal with that uh, commercial railings business that you mentioned. And to me, this seems like something that's ripe for a little bit of attack by competitors. There are a few uh, competitors, none that have the same type of uh, composite offering that Trex does. Every big player in this industry does it a little differently. They have one um, competitor that just does PVC uh, decks, and that is you know increasingly popular. They've got another one that is incorporating bamboo, but I wonder how much of their product line going forward is still going to rest on that original formulation. They have some patents that are pending, but I just I think that's a risk also. Not a huge one. I don't want to blow that out of proportion, but it is very rare that you see a company which relies so heavily on its patented technology to not have patented a lot of the the variants uh, or variant ideas that they have, but maybe those are coming in uh, the next few years. Or maybe as a challenging patent to get, they're aware that they're not going to be able to get such an all-encompassing patent again. And that's the reason why they don't have anything patented beyond that one, which maybe is a bigger concern, one that I admittedly did not pick up on. But you did pick up on one that I think you know anyone who buys this company has to address, and that is manufacturing utilization. They're, right now, they're, they're sort of tapped out in their capacity. What's going on there? Yeah, manufacturing is a bit of a mess, to put it lightly, for, for Trex right now, which is the pandemic caused a bit of a surge in demand. Um, but there's also a fire at one of their manufacturing facilities over the last quarter, which certainly didn't help things. So right now they are at 100% capacity using all of their manufacturing facilities just to meet current demands. But they are in the process of building out more manufacturing uh, throughout the United States right now, which is going to be important for capacity expansions. So right now, I believe they're producing um, only in Nevada and Virginia. Um and hopefully, they'll continue to expand capacity in the future. I think that is a major concern because unlike something like Peloton, when we talk about manufacturing capacity, I think Peloton has proven that people will wait eight to 10 weeks to get a bike delivered to their house before they buy the nearest competitor. Uh, 
However, I think Trex right now is already competing for that upsell. When they can't immediately deliver, it's probably not a hard downsell for people just to be like, okay, well, I'm going with the wood or I'm going with the bamboo, whatever it may be. So manufacturing will be key to to watch. It's important for them to expand out manufacturing. I think you should just be aware that the financial performance temporarily will be impacted. The margins will be impacted as they expand. I mean, they only have two manufacturing facilities right now. So building a third one is is a pretty big undertaking for this this business. That's true. So, um, Emily, any other risks before we talk really briefly about the latest earnings report and then speculate about the future? Really briefly, I'll mention the seasonality that you we see with Trex a bit. There's a, a lack of willingness to build, uh, usually in the winter months, and then also whenever the weather is bad. And so, a business like Trex is impacted by the storms and the crazy ice thing that happened. I don't know how to <laughs> right. call it yeah. that happened in Texas over this past year. And those sorts of things impact this business more so than others. So, I don't think it's a risk in the sense that oh, I would let that keep me out of this business. I would just want to be sure that investors are aware that there's material slowdowns in this business because of things that are unpredictable, including seasonality and weather patterns. Awesome. So, Emily, this was very interesting. We talked about that compounded annual growth rate of 14% over the last few years, but lately, Trex has been killing it. What happened in this first quarter that they recently reported? It looked very, very strong to me. Yeah, a really strong quarter over this most recent report, which I believe was back at the beginning of May. Uh, Sales were up 23% year over year, which again is great for a business that's this mature, really driven by their residential segment. And despite the fact that there was margin compression, um, I did note that there was a fire at one of their manufacturing facilities. Uh, Trex does expect some normalization. So gross margins fell from 20%. 45% to 39%. And when they start increasing prices, which I believe are expected to happen in late August, it'll be interesting to see how those gross margins change. Hopefully, they tick up to their historical average, but that will be critical to watch. It was still a great quarter, though, like I mentioned. Demand for decking coming out of this pandemic and during this pandemic was above its historical norms. I noticed uh, when I was flipping through the, the earnings that strength is sort of reflected in the other statements, uh, the cash flow statement and the balance sheet. And this brings me to a little, a quick little side discretion, digression. I shouldn't say discretion because I rarely exercise it. I meant to say digression. <laughs> so let me digress here for just a bit, but it's related to, to what you're talking about, Emily, and, and the theme, uh, I think, of this whole episode so far. It, it even has something to do with David's foresight in picking this company. The company's very well run. And you can see that in how all these profits fall out and what the company does with its profits. Their balance sheet is impressive because it's got you know virtually zero long-term debt any given quarter that you look at it. I really like that Trex has the same basic capital structure today that it had when it went public in 1999. And what I mean by that is they haven't really changed their balance sheet tremendously by, let's say, taking on a lot of debt to expand or having secondary share offerings to raise money for very rapid expansion. Basically, every quarter, the company's operating cash flows exceed its reported net income. So, this is a type of cash conversion for those of you who are familiar with that metric using EBITDA. Forget about EBITDA for a second. If you just take a look at its operating cash flow versus the net income that Trex puts on its books uh, each quarter, you have more of those operating cash flows than you show bottom line profits. And what that means is they essentially are always running at a bit of a cash surplus, but they use that surplus to expand capacity. So while they probably could have chosen any number of ways to grow more quickly, uh, let's say borrow a whole bunch, go out and issue a lot of debt, and then use that to have an even bigger production footprint. They've been very disciplined. They've taken their time with these strong cash flows. It's so interesting. The first I've seen that they've hit their the credit markets in a long time is just actually a drawdown on their line of credit facility for $136 million this quarter. 
that showed up on their balance sheet, that still left $175 million worth of working capital on their books with no debt associated with it. Um, of course, they do have some lease expenses, but if there's a trade-off here that management has made, which is, I'll put it this way, we could grow more quickly or we could sort of stretch our manufacturing capacity, sometimes let it hit 100%. If we have unforeseen events like that Texas ice thing, which Emily, that's the best description I've actually heard for what happened in Texas this year uh, today. If we have stuff like that, so be it. We will catch up a little bit. We'll sacrifice some sales rather than try to go out and alter dramatically our capital structure. So this kind of discipline is it's nice to see and maybe it's a good setup for the next part of this podcast as we talk about what's going to happen next. Yeah, this is this is the part of the podcast I was looking for to the most because we're trying to answer the question of okay, well that's great all of that stuff happened in the past. What's going to happen over the next five to 10 years. And I think the big question that's probably on people's minds, uh, I'll kick it off with, is lumber prices. And I have to admit, when I was asked that question on Motley Fool Live last week about Trex, my immediate reaction was, well, this has to be a boon for Trex. Trex has always been more expensive than wood. As the price of wood goes up, when people are looking to make that decision, suddenly you're not being asked to shell out 50 or 60% more in order to get the better product. And because of the huge increases in lumber prices, there has been, uh, I guess, a relative decrease in the price comparison between Trex and wood products. They appear more reasonably priced. Um, Trex is only around 10% more expensive than wood right now, which is the lowest it's ever been. But interestingly enough, in the most recent quarter, management noted that they're actually seeing higher conversion across all of their product lines. So it seems to imply that people aren't just upgrading from wood to the cheapest version of Trex because they're really price sensitive. They're upgrading to Trex regardless of the cost. So it's almost a good thing. Um, Once people realize that they can afford Trex, once they realize that wood's expensive now and they go to the alternative products, they don't just get the cheapest model of Trex. They pay up for the more expensive versions, the one that look and feel more like real wood, which to me says that maybe people and consumers aren't as price sensitive as they believe they are. Or maybe they're they're changing. That's so counterintuitive, but it's very nice to see, I'm sure, if you're Trex. So they announced their latest line called Enhance. I think it was late 2018, maybe it was early 2019. Enhance really sold beyond expectations. And when we talked about Trex growing more quickly, quickly even before the pandemic. This was a driver of that. So before the pandemic, they offered this, uh, I won't call it a cheaper line, but more of an entry-level product to attract new buyers. And it was taking off. But now you fast forward where we're coming out of the pandemic and they're seeing this greater buying across all of their price points. I think this may have something to do with some more uh, lifestyle changes that folks are making after COVID-19. It also has to do with other things we've been talking about on the, the podcast lately, Emily, the, the fact that uh, millennials in some ways are sort of, some of them are sort of stuck because uh, a growing percentage of millennials that are being tracked through so many different surveys, they want to move into homes, but the housing market is so um, hot right now and the supply of new homes is so dreadfully thin that those who are already in houses are staying put. They're spending more on those houses. So I definitely see if you're thinking that you might want to move, but you just can't because surrounding home prices are so high, just spending more on those renovations and upgrades. And this is probably a longer term tailwind than it looks today, because you could think about lumber prices normalizing over the next year, and that's all well and good. But there is this longer term trend which has been in place since the Great Recession. We've been underbuilding versus demand for new residential construction since 2008. This is only in Trex's favor if we are looking at that five to 10 year period. This was probably the biggest shock that I had when pulling out what my expectations were for Trex over the next five to 10 years. I, in my mind right now, was thinking, okay, lumber prices are really high benefit to Trex. We have underbuilt. There needs to be demand for all these new homes. 
Yeah, you know, wood's expensive. When people are building decks, that means that Trex wins. And there's actually this interesting lag that happens for home building. And again, management answered this question in the most recent quarter from an analyst who asked it, which is essentially like, okay, well, as we build houses, I mean, surely all of these houses are going to have Trex decks on them, right? This is a great thing. And I'm, I'm over here getting really excited to buy more shares of Trex. But there's actually a 12 to 24 month lag between when a house is built versus when people actually add decks on. And I, I suppose I'm showing my my ignorance here, not being a homeowner myself, was houses aren't always built with decks. In fact, a majority of the time, they're built without decks and the decks are added on later. So it's good for long-term investors. I still think that that this ends up being a benefit for Trex, but it's not an immediate benefit. So if you see an uptick in home building, which I'm not quite sure we've seen yet, especially with lumber prices, but over the next few years, if home building ticks up, like people expect that it's going to need to, add on one to two more years before that ends up being results for Trex, because that's how long people will take to build their decks. Yeah, Emily, I am a homeowner, but I'm going to show my ignorance. I thought most new houses were built with decks too. <laughs> it may be just because I live in the South and it seems customary, but it was that was a surprising conversation uh, in that conference call. But I think too, that that's one that's a little more hard to track so just because there is that lag. You, you don't know as an investor because they don't break this out in any kind of uh, particular fashion. What part of that sales growth is due to lag from new housing construction. But but what we do know is that home builders are racing to catch up. Doesn't matter what the price of lumber is, that isn't slowing down the housing construction industry. It's only slowing it down in the supply chain aspect because we, we are seeing that people are willing to pay up. Uh, the demand is high. So whatever that gives track, it's sort of like uh, gravy percentage points on top of their their core revenue. And the other thing that's interesting to think about, which is, again, they don't break it out, but I would presume the bigger part of their business is just the deck upgrade cycle. And management talked a little bit about that in the most recent quarter. What did you take away from it, Asit? So what I took away from it is just the sheer number of decks, which I was totally ignorant of. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So the management team projects 40 to 15 million decks that there are existing 40 to 50 million decks in North America. And these each have only an average life of eight to 10 years. Now, you can do what I did and you can keep try to keep it in good shape. And, and I can promise you it'll last longer than that, but you got to put in the work if you don't want to buy the Trex product. Um, so they think that that average deck upgrade cycle, which includes repairs and upgrades on average, um, that is going to play out over the next five to seven years. They think that they will get a preponderance of the upgrades. For me, this is about, again, brand power. And it's brand power with the consumer who may um, ultimately be asking their contractor about Trex because uh, they have such a tremendous word of mouth. It comes from that brand power with those pros, with those contractors who have now decades of experience with the product and have seen the company innovate. This is not an acquisitive company. So Trex has really a a track record of introducing new product lines every few years. I think that they'll capitalize on that in the coming years, just as they um, offered up Enhance, which we were talking about a few minutes ago. I think you'll see more of these lines come out. And that's sort of a key to uh, capitalizing on this deck upgrade cycle, but it's a key to revenue growth in the future. If the company isn't going to add on a lot of intellectual property and and new patents, what you have is uh, endless fascination with new configurations, new products, and new finishes. Emily, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that their decks are becoming more and more realistic. So, um, and not to get too much into the way that their their decks are constructed, but a, a Trex slat is finished on three sides, basically. And within that uh, strategy, you can finish the slot on all four sides, and some of their competitors do. But I think what that does is it makes the uh, individual uh, slat or railing more accessible and affordable to the customer. And they take some of that profit because this is, after all, it's a 
it's a product that has to compete with lumber. So the price points have to be within reason. And I think they, they've been plowing that in for so many years into the finishes. That's a big part of this business, how to make it more realistic, how to expand the color lines, which they've done year after year uh, from sort of these basic gray matted looking decks, which is what I remember when Trex first came out as a product. To me, it, it wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing product. But today, looking back over all the the um, product samples online when I was doing research for this episode, I realized that it is something that management is very keen to do. It's not necessarily changing the composition of the slat and the railing. It's, it's really making it more pleasing and more natural uh, to the customer to approximate a wood grain as, as closely as they can. So I think that that seems to me like a, a I don't want to exaggerate here and say it's going to be a huge tailwind, but it could be. If when you think about that staggering number, 40 to 50 million decks and new product lines, they can aim at that market. Yeah. And not to keep throwing numbers at people, but management did provide some interesting numbers in the most recent earnings report, which you normally don't get. So I feel like it's always worthwhile to share them. And one of the numbers they noted was that uh, any market share gain, any 1% market share gain that they take away from wood that moves to Trex is another $50 million in sales for Trex or 5% increase in their current sales. So even just marginal movement away from wood to Trex, right? You don't need every single deck owner for those four to 50 million North American decks to go to Trex in order to make this a good business. Very, very small marginal moves in market share between wood to wood alternatives, and in this case, Trex, actually results in really meaningful growth for, for Trex. So it's interesting. I didn't quite realize, I guess, how big the market is for decks, especially considering that Trex is really only in North America right now. Um, but it, it made me feel a little bit better about the long-term opportunities here. Yeah, but you know, I absolutely hate it when a management team spouts out figures like that because then I just want to forget everything else and run out and buy the stock. One <laughs> percent of market share captures can result in these tens of millions of dollars of sales uh, for us. The the uh, rational investor aspect of my brain starts to dim down, and maybe it's a good thing that the the gut part of me says you just take a position that that's pretty persuasive but on the other hand grabbing each percentage point is not as easy as it looks i will say though with that track record of really fast revenue growth i could i could see it happening as well okay i'm curious um I'll give my thoughts after yours because I don't want to, you know, accidentally color your opinion. But when you think about Trex as an investment headed out over the next five years, let's say, do you think this is a market beating stock? I think that one is fairly easy for me to answer. I well, let, let me back up and say, will the stock trade at a greater price um, than it does today in five years? I think it's got a really good chance to. Um, as for will it beat the market, I think that's easier to see than some other companies um, that I am looking at. My big basket of tech stocks I study, I think those are at uh, some inflated valuations, even though many of them have these great business models and great markets. I think Trex has both a reasonable valuation and these markets it can tap into. We haven't even talked about international markets, which I know you point out in our our prep, Emily, that they, they've they got an international uh, sales component, but it's so small that it's immaterial. They don't even call it the number in their annual reports. They just say, we've got international sales. So, they don't have international sales. I mean, they do, but um, that's more of an opportunity for them. And when I look at the plan to increase capacity, so management's answer to us dinging them on that manufacturing capacity being tapped out is a 70% expansion of existing capacity. When they finish the uh, work on their Virginia plant, between that and the Nevada facility, they'll be able to produce 70% more than they did at at pre-COVID levels, so 2019 levels. And management mentioned on the first quarter call that they're, they're going to aim some of that um, at international revenue. Now, remember, they've got a totally U.S. manufacturing footprint, so that means they have to spend some time 
figuring out their logistics freight supply chains, as well as distribution partners, since that's their model. It's a wholesale partner model in places like Europe, uh, Latin America, and Asia. But that's wide open white space for this company. So with the tailwinds that we've talked about, the fact that the company's got a track record of selling into demand, uh, there's consistent demand and growing demand for the product. The fact that it has more than half of the eco composites market in the U.S. because it created that market, um, and I don't think any competitor really is going to give them too much trouble in the coming years. I think this has every potential to be um, a market-beating stock. I love its balance sheet. There are risks. We talked about a few. I mean, these aren't all the risks that are inherent in this investment, but I would say you know this reminds me of companies that I really, really gravitate towards that have proven themselves very solid state. They're big. They've scaled. And Trex isn't big, but it's big in its industry. Um, and they're just going to grow more. Autodesk is my recent favorite example. You've heard me rave about Autodesk. This is sort of like that in this industry. But now that I've tr- gone out of my way to color your opinion, which I think was good to begin with, Emily, what, what do you think this will beat the market over the next five years? I... I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I I do a lot of digging and I come away with an answer that's really unsatisfactory, which is I I don't know. I'm actually I'm scratching my head over this one. And much easier question if you had asked me just a couple of years ago when Trex I think was trading at much more reasonable levels in terms of valuation. I'm a little bit worried about Traxa. And let me first start off by saying Traxa is an amazing business, an amazing business. They have, to your point about their financial performance, self-funded their own growth for decades, led by a really smart management team that's prudent with their capital, clearly knows what they're doing. They're a great business that's doing something important in the world that has some very real tailwinds as home building kicks up in the US, as it becomes less environmentally friendly and potentially less economical to build using wood. So for all of those reasons, there's a lot, a lot to like about Trex, and I don't want to downplay that. I, I do find myself just a little bit nervous about how much bigger Trex can get. And that's where I find myself nervous about beating the market over the long term, because I think it implies uh, you know $20 billion business, $30 billion business in the making, which of which I'm not positive Trex can get to without some major international expansion, which is really challenging when they're manufacturing solely in the United States, using a lot of recycled products, which may be hard to source and access as they expand internationally. I'm also a little bit nervous just about the costs of DEX. And I say that because Trex versus wood, I mean, that's only a small fraction of the actual costs that go into building a deck, the the foundation, the structural support, the integrity, all of that stuff that has to be built out. That's the vast majority of the costs, not the actual raw materials themselves. So there ends up being a lot of other costs associated with treks and with decks for that matter, but a lot with treks that aren't necessarily attached to just the price of the material itself. That alongside, again, there's their need to build out manufacturing capacity. I think they're trading at a trailing price to earnings above 50 uh, for a business that has not grown this quickly in a long time for which business may normalize over the next couple of years. So for all those reasons, I think I actually come out of this research maybe a little bit more nervous about being a shareholder than I was when I came in. I, I think if I was a shareholder, which I'm not for no reason other than I just never got around to it, uh, I think if I was a shareholder, I'd feel happy owning this business and hopefully you know, enjoying the gains that I got over the prior years. I don't know what the next five years look like. I I genuinely feel like I could flip a coin right now and that could you know beat the market, trail the market, flip a coin. That's kind of how I feel. Is that is that bad? Am I Am I taking a cop-out answer here? <laughs> No, I think it's a very rational um, answer. And, you know, we approach this from two different points of view because you're a shareholder. I'm not. So for me, I I don't have the the um, maybe slight subliminal pull in my head that's saying, you know, is this going to maintain what it did? I'm, I'm sort of parachuting in. And what I'm looking at is a proven 
growth that is averaging, as we said, like 14, 15%. So you need the revenue growth. If you're going to beat the market, you have to have a sustainable edge over S&P 500 growth. So uh, when I look at the, the S&P 500 over the next five years, do I think that entire um, universe is going to grow at a 14% rate in terms of revenue, all the companies? I don't think they will. The other thing that I like about this is that it's still a relatively small capitalization stock. And, and everyone bear with me for a moment because I know, Emily, it's trading around $11 billion bucks. Is that the, the market yes. capitalization? Yeah. So many of you may say, well, Gee, that doesn't sound like a small cap to me. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of market capitalization, companies like Apple and Netflix and, and Amazon and Google have punched out the definitions, um, and they've they've pu punched out the whole universe of market capitalization. So when you've got these mega companies in the trillions, it really makes, for all practical purposes, companies that are in the 11 to 12 to 15 billion dollar range, still small caps. And uh, for those of you who are having trouble wrapping your head around this concept, take a look at some of the biggest small cap index funds. You will see, um, as a rule, they include in their largest holdings companies that are 10 billion, 12 billion, 15 dollar, um, 12, 15 billion dollar uh, market capitalizations. And if you if you buy that logic, then it's also interesting that historically. Small cap stocks have traded um, somewhere. Russell 2000 stocks, for example, have traded somewhere around 30 times forward earnings. Now, this company trades at a premium, as Emily said, it's 50 times on a um, trailing basis. It's about 46 times uh, its earnings on a forward basis. But that's not a huge premium to the universe that it's existed in for the last five to 10 years. So, as it gets into that mid cap ter territory, Sure, I see that there's going to be some uh, margin compression there, but I don't think it's going to be as significant as some might think because it's got this proven revenue growth um, component. And I think there's enough in North America for it to sustain this type of growth. Emily's got a great point, though. After the next five or 10 years, it will really need to hit that international expansion if it's going to continue to grow at that rate. So I say this with all the fearlessness of someone who doesn't own the stock, Emily. <laughs> Maybe my answer would be more cautious if I had enjoyed some gains and, and I had had that really emotional aspect of seeing the stock take off, which it has. I mean, um, as we talk, I am looking at the stock chart, which if you pull this up from just 2015 on, it's a pretty phenomenal gain in price. In fact, Bear with me for just a moment, everyone. Um, over the past year, this, the stock is up about 60% trailing 12 months, and it was up as high as 80%. So um, I, I totally get that uh, note of caution on your part. And uh, you you probably will be um, very close to right in the, the long run, which means maybe it's just going to match the S&P 500 performance. Maybe it's just going to match the market in the next few years. Well, I tend to be wrong and listening to you has kind of reinvigorated my my belief in this business. So I look forward to to seeing what it has for us over the next five years. Uh, but until those next five years, Asit, thank you as always for joining and providing your insights. Absolutely. Thanks as always for having me, Emily. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, you can always shoot us an email at industry at focus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asa Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on.